there's been this shift in how we think about failure as as opposed to, you know, my business failed, it's now I failed. Um, And I think that that is part of what has made it hard for us to move on from failure in a way that doesn't get our ego and our identity all wrapped up in it. And is probably the reason we now need a bunch of people to tell us how, no, 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 we didn't really fail, but this was just really an opportunity in disguise. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with author Rachel Friedman, whose 2011 travel book, The Good Girl's Guide to Getting Lost, was so engaging that I gave it a cover blurb, declaring that readers would, quote, laugh and empathize as she captures the excitement of testing out life's possibilities on the far side of the world, end quote. Rachel's new book out this month is called And Then We Grew Up on Creativity, Potential, and the Imperfect Art of Adulthood, and it explores what happens when the artistic dreams of your childhood don't quite turn out the way you expected. You know, there's this cultural notion that true art comes out of single-minded obsession, a notion that has been underscored by movies like this one. Tell me, why do you say you're a painter? Because I love painting, I have to paint. I've always been a painter, that I know. A born painter? Yes. How do you know? Because I can't do anything else, and believe me, I've tried. That's Willem Dafoe playing artist Vincent Van Gogh in the 2018 movie At Eternity's Gate. Yet despite this mythology about the obsessive genius of artists, not everyone is cut out to embrace art at the expense of most everything else in their lives. Or at least it's not something that leads to balance and happiness, and Rachel's book explores what it's like to give up dreams when they don't make sense anymore. What makes this book compelling is that it isn't your typical inspirational how-to primer on how to make dreams come true, so much as it is how to make peace with giving up on deeply held dreams in a way that can make your life richer and more balanced. Rachel focuses on dreams of the arts, and specifically the stories of old classmates she met at Michigan's renowned Interlochen Arts summer camp when she was young. But in a sense, her exploration of letting go of old dreams can apply to many life scenarios, including sports and science and other obsessions. Rachel and I talk about nonlinear career arcs and how to recognize when the focus of your own dreams shift. We talk about society's ideas of success and failure and how they have a way of making us less happy. As usual, this episode is sponsored by Airtrex, which is a great way to save money on round-the-world and multi-stop flight itineraries. Check out their flight planning tools at Airtrex.com and plug in your dream trip to see what I'm talking about. All right, here's Rachel Friedman and I discussing the complicated notion of artistic life dreams. We start by talking about perceptions of success and how these ideas feed our sense of self. Let's listen in. Well, your book is unique in a really interesting way in that it sort of deals with notions of success and the expectations of success and how they tie into one sense of self. It talks about the realities of life, of adulthood and life balance. But while so many books are about using your failures to reinvest into more success um, or, you know, finding ways to, to sort of get a back door to success. Your book is really more about the idea of, in a sense, making peace with g- giving up a deeply held dream and sort of the lawn, nonlinear um, 
nature of a lot of kinds of success. So what inspired you to write this book and to write it in the way that you did write it? So I guess the answer to what inspired me is that I was struggling with my own nonlinear career. And I wanted to know if other people had, and of course, you know, in the abstract that that everyone struggles and, you know, our artistic careers and frankly, careers in lots of other fields are often not a straight shot up a ladder, um, but, you know, are more of a checkerboard to, to quote someone that I quote in the book. But the stories that we hear often or that we read about when we read a profile of someone who's really successful often makes it look as though that success is linear and it's this gradual, you know, process of making it to the top and then you're at the top and that's sort of where you sit forever. And we know that that is for most people, not the case that things ebb and flow. So I was really curious to have conversations with people for whom careers had ebbed and flowed because I felt like that was really the place to look for guidance for my own path because it would map, you know, more onto my own experience. And when I thought about who to connect with about these questions, the first people that came to mind were these group of former campmates who had all had very clear ideas since childhood of what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I thought, so who better to ask (laughs) to see 20 years later how it had all turned out so far. Well, I might interject here that uh, you were an aspiring violist, which is something I I didn't really know. I knew you uh, because I read your your first book, which is a travel book, which I which right. I blurbed actually. I really enjoyed it. Um, and so then it's like, wow, Rachel Rachel when she was much younger was an aspiring violist, and it led you to a very specific place, Interlochen Camp, which apparently has. Um, has um, yielded some fairly famous performers in various arts. Mm-hmm. And and so in a sense, the personal connection to you in this book, I mean, in a general sense, the book is really about ideas of success and failure and how to make sense with how we navigate this nonlinear li- line through life. But in the specific sense, you sort of thought that you would be performing the viola in Carnegie Hall when you were 47 right. years old. Uh, and so, yeah. so, so tell us a little bit about, um, about those artistic dreams and how the summer camp, the interlock and summer camp enhanced them, because it sounds like um, inspiring to the point of obnoxiousness, like this summer camp where people break <laughs> into song on the sidewalk right. and, um, it's, it's just like art nerd central. So uh, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, Interlochen is a really intense and magical place. And and when you um, meet people in the arts, uh, you inevitably run into someone who went to Interlochen, either for the summer camp, um, which starts very young. Uh, You can go, when I went, there were eight-year-olds there and then up through high school. And the academy, which is the private boarding school, um, is a high school at Interlochen. So there are really well-known alums that have come out of, of both of those places. And it was uh, the kind of place where if you were an artistic kind of dreamy kid who maybe didn't feel like you quite fit in at home, 
suddenly when you were dropped off at Interlock and you kind of were in this magical wonderland where like everyone was was artistic and quirky and passionate and weird. And so it, it was it had all the intensity that I think summer camp has for everyone. Anyone who goes to summer camp knows what an intense bonding experience that is. But then you throw in a bunch of kids, you know, who are just like so excited that there's some other person who knows all the lyrics to Godspell and you have like peak, peak bonding and melodrama. The music culture there is extremely intense and you practiced for many hours a day. You had auditions every week in the orchestra. And I'm talking from the very beginning, you know, at the orchestra at eight years old or when I was there, you would be auditioning every week to see if you stayed in your same chair in the orchestra or if you were going to move up or down. So while it was, um, annoyingly magical. It was also really like a boot camp for creative kids. And it taught you very quickly whether or not you wanted to keep going. Well, it feels like this is a sort of environment that maybe youth who aren't necessarily artistic might have a, an experience with. Like when I was reading about it, it sort of reminded me of that there's sports camps, for example, yeah. for youth. Or maybe future business leaders of America gatherings or something where basically – you're around people with the same interest, and it's great, but then maybe you also end up with these expectations that may or may mm -hmm. not be realistic. You end up being feeling a little bit competitive, and in your case, it feels like it eventually led to a kind of crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do think even though Interlochen is a performing arts camp, and even though the book is about people who started out wanting to be artists, it really, it, these cultures um, of intense, you know, intensely passionate youth who, whether it's sports or science camp or whatever it is, um, almost everyone I know has an experience like this where they got deeply involved in some sort of pursuit. And then, you know, um, more often than not, Hit, hit a ceiling with it at some point and decided, you know, I'm not going to pursue this professionally. The arts, like other fields, you know, can have can have that. You feel when you feel like you're going to be a musician from the time, you know, I, I felt that way from the time I was eight years old until I was 19. That was the majority um, of my kind of conscious life spent thinking I was going to be a violist, and so when it didn't pan out. I was very lost. And and apparently that happened sort of when you started college. And and so it's interesting that you sort of make sense in your book uh, of of your own reckoning with your viola dreams by talking to your friends from Interlock. And, and you know, it's interesting, using sports as an example, with, with sports, you either make the team or you don't. You know, you either right. you have the stats or you run the race fast enough or you don't, where arts seems a little bit more ambiguous. Mm -hmm. So... Over the course of the book, you, you bring in a lot of expertise. It's not just the stories of your old summer camp friends. But as you tracked down your summer camp friends who are now adults with various levels of success, what did you find? I suppose the big answer to your question would be is that I came away with a sense of kind of ease and acceptance about my writing life, about my creative life that I didn't have before. I started digging into all this. My takeaways in the book are really about kind of dismantling these definitions of things that we have, you know, that we have about success or failure or quitting and to really like dig into looking at how we can navigate um, on a very personal level, something like 
quitting as opposed to navigating it with all like the internet clickbait that tells us how we're supposed to like rebrand failure and, you know, optimize every second. If we were only optimizing our time well, then we wouldn't fail in the first place. And I think we do a lot of right now in this cultural moment, um, trying to talk ourselves out of, um, feeling bad about something not working out, feeling a little disappointment. I'm not saying we should wallow in that, but I think that we sometimes, we don't move through those very human feelings of not getting something we wanted in life because we, you know, we're trying to, um, we're trying to not be seen as a failure. We're trying to, to not feel disappointed. We ignore that kind of really necessary stage in our life. Well, I like how you acknowledge that in the book. You acknowledge that there is a, a whole genre of sort of using your failure for success type books and mm-hmm. advice and social media. Yet, I, I think maybe your book would be more marketable if it was literally that kind of book. But in a mm-hmm. way, it explores sort of the wiggle room here because um, just in the in the course of the last few minutes of our conversation, you refer to yourself as a writer, which is is not a violist, right? That at, at a certain point, mm-hmm. your ambitions changed. Uh, you write in the book, I knew music school was supposed to weed people out. I assumed it would be other weeds. Um, and then eventually, yeah. you sort of used your artistic focus to be a writer. But even becoming a writer wasn't like crossing the finish line. Again, it's not this linear path. And so keeping in mind that you didn't set out to um, write a make your failure a success type book that you really wanted to explore the human texture of how complicated this all, this all is. Um, and since you are a writer, since it's, it's easier to write a book than to play one on viola. Um, so I hear, how did you, yeah. how did you embrace nuance? How did you really dig into the vulnerability that comes with these, these transitions and this nonlinear paths to success? Yeah, you're right that my book would be more marketable if it was about, you know, the upside of failure. And in some ways, I do think it's about the upside of failure. It's not just this, but it's not this kind of like relentless positivity thing that we have going on right now. It is a little more nuanced. And I like to say when I'm talking about the book, you know, realism is not um, the opposite of optimism because um, I've had friends say, you know, oh, this is just a book about you're being disappointed or being mediocre. And I'm like, no, it's really, I promise it's not that it's not cynical. Um, but it is trying to have a warm hearted, uh, realism approach to our lives. And part of the reason it's funny, they wanted to release it in January is because of the kind of self-help market, you know, and they're like, all the new year, new you books. And I said, that's fine, but I'll be marketing it as new year, same you, because it is about acceptance, um, more than anything else. Um, so in terms of finding that texture, you know, I, I just knew that when I was exploring this topic that I had to find the nuance and the texture in all of these ideas that I was exploring in order to make what felt like authentic sense to me. Like I didn't want to talk myself out of the fact that there is some part of me that feels disappointed that I didn't make it as a musician and that that's okay. And I think in some ways I was still hanging on to that because 
I had been very dismissive of that feeling like, oh, how silly, you know, you became a writer. Why on earth would you feel disappointed about not becoming a musician? I mean, you're still like a creative person and, you know, lots of people don't make it as a musician, but I don't think I ever really kind of grappled with what that disappointment was about and what, what I think it was about was this discrepancy we all face between how we imagine our lives are going to look like and their much more complicated adult reality. And some of us face that, that some of, for some of us, that gap is very big. And for some of us, that gap is very small. But I think that we all grapple with it. Well, I think it's interesting that you bring in the idea of youth by focusing on on the interlocking camp when we when you, you were younger, because I think youth is when you see yourself in terms of pure potential. You know, I think mm-hmm. I think Jose or uh, Jose Ortega y Gasset, the Spanish philosopher, said of Goethe that he saw himself as potentially anything, and hence he assumed he poten- he was everything in actuality. Um, and, and such is the charm and the insolence of youth. So I think that in a young environment, when you see yourself as potentially anything, you're sort of condescending towards adults. You know, there's this this idea that young people see, they appreciate their teachers, but sometimes think, well, you know, or their coaches, you know, if, if this coach was really a good athlete, he'd be a professional athlete. If this teacher was really a good violist, she would be in the best symphony in the world. Um, and then actually, like you said, that, that adulthood is complicated. And... Mm-hmm. And um, you bring in the idea of art monsters, you know, the idea of, of throwing everything else in your life at the altar of art. And that can come at the expense of a lot of pleasures of adulthood, a lot of, you know, family and routine type things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then as you were saying, uh, success is often a comparative thing. I'm just curious to know, what did you learn about success and our ideas of success, and maybe our delusions of success. I mean, you bring in Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule. You you talk about the idea of, of privilege and how a lot of artistic kids are really mm-hmm. cultivated by their parents in a way that other kids cannot be. So what were your discoveries in the idea of success, or at least success as a construct? Yeah, I think we vastly oversimplify the formula for success. And I think the reason it's so easy to oversimplify is because of course our brains want simple formulas. So you want to think, Oh, I put in my 10,000 hours and that's how I reach success. Or, you know, I, if I can cultivate grit, if I'm a gritty enough person, you know, that's the key to success. You know, if I can hack my personality in some way or put in the time or be in the right place at the right time, we, we tell ourselves all these stories about, I think, why we are successful or not, and also why other people are successful or not, that are grounded in some, but certainly not all of the truth. It's really complicated. And so I think that demystifying the kind of formula, formulae that we as a culture, we kind of love to trot out there as um, answers to success was really useful for me, for my own personal understanding of it. Something a very wise therapist once asked me is, you know, what's your definition of creative success? And I started to ramble off a list of kind of um, big picture creative success, you know, what that would look like. And she was like, no, 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 like, what exactly do you want 
from your writing? Like, what does it look like for you very specifically when like you picture your day to day life? And my answer was much more actually humble or it was much, it was, it was like a much more less ambitious isn't quite the right word, but the stuff that would make me happy, you know, as a writer is essentially, I want to write things that I care about and I want people who also care about those things to read that writing and feel connected to it. That was sort of like the basic answer. You know, none of that answer involves winning a specific award or having a certain amount of money or only writing for a full-time living. I think part of the problem here might be just the idea that narratives simplify. So when you hear, Mm -hmm. when you think about success, you think success stories. And so it's obstacle solution, overcoming the obstacle, obstacle solution, and then the person becomes full and it's a, it's happily ever after. You know, the idea mm-hmm. of that narratives have to end, right? That that um, unless you have a sequel that talks about how messy life is, then, um, uh, then really stories lead us to believe that life is simpler than we think it is. And so mm-hmm. let's talk about the flip side of success, which is failure and models of failure and notions of failure. And you, you sort of talk about the historical idea that failure used to sort of meant, you know, an, an, an act. It was act related. It was, it was a failure mm-hmm. in an endeavor. And at some point it became attached to identity. The idea that failure is not just an act that you did that didn't work out, but it's part of your identity, that you are a failure. Yeah, this was a real, this was a shift um, in the the connotations of that word, the way we use that word, um, as there have been shifts in the way we use a word like potential, um, which used to mean, or sort of definitionally means possibility, but we now think of it as promise, you know, someone who has potential, we like expect to do great things, when in reality, um, the definition is possibility. Um, so yeah, there's been this shift in how we think about failure as, as opposed to, you know, my business failed. It's now I failed. Um, and I think that that is part of what has made it hard for us to move on from failure in a way that doesn't get our ego and our identity all wrapped up in it and is probably the reason we now need a bunch of people to tell us how no 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 we didn't really fail but this was just really an opportunity in disguise and um here's how it's going to lead you to your next great thing and there's also research there's a little bit of in the book about failure um that looking at people who can quit uh, like at the right time, quit an endeavor and move on to another one, not only have more opportunity to be successful in something else that they take on later, but have lower levels of stress. Um, they're like, they're healthier people, essentially, these people who can quit. Now, the trick is knowing when to quit because you quit too early, you, you know, you feel like, Maybe you could have realized your potential and you didn't. You quit too late. You feel like, oh, you spent so much time doing this thing. Um, and then it didn't work out. You know, it's a very tricky line. And I think only we know when we, but I do think we know somewhere internally when it is the, the time to let go of something um, that we've been pursuing. And then I think the trick is to kind of mourn, mourn that. And I even think it's okay to call what, you know, what happened a failure, but where we get, in tricky territories when we start to then think of ourselves as a failure as opposed to I'm going to mourn this loss and I'm going to feel disappointed and then now I'm going to move on to the next thing. 
Well, I want to get into the idea of quitting as a positive act, as as quit, quitting as self-enhancement, you know, like mm-hmm. a holistic self-enhancement as, as opposed to just your one narrowly focused goal. But first, I want to talk about the idea of the role that public validation and performance plays in our ideas of success versus failure. Because, I mean, at, at an artistic level, like at a sports level, there's a certain degree, but maybe less so than artistic success, where you don't have to be the best violist in the world if you just play it with passion and if playing it brief, brings you happiness. Mm, yeah, I think it's really important to recognize that public validation um is an important motivator. Like we, of course, we want to be recognized for doing something well. And I think it's disingenuous when we talk about the arts or anything else, when we say, oh, you should only be driven by passion. Yeah, of course, you should be driven by passion. You should work hard. But it's to tell someone, you know, who's had no sign (laughs) that those things Um, are working out for them in terms of, you know, uh, making money or receiving public validation, whatever the thing is uh, that would allow them to to keep on pursuing that endeavor. You know, I think we we can get into like tricky territory where we're like, it either has to be all intrinsic motivation or all external motivation when really we're we should have both. We should be driven um, sort of on a primary level, I think a deep, like visceral level to do something we love, but then we have to figure out for ourselves, you know, what, how much public validation do you need? You know, like, are you looking for Beyonce level public validation or something less? Um, Is, are you happy to write and have your writing never published and be read by your friends and family? You know, what, what is, the line for you in in terms of that balance um, between doing something that feels good and knowing that you need a little bit of something external as well to continue to feel good doing it for whatever length of time. And of course, then there's also the moment when the thing that you are trying to pursue, if it is a passion, you realize, okay, I'm not going to make my living doing this, but it still has a role in my life. And I think that's something I, you know, struggled with, with music. I wish that I had been able to enjoy it more as a hobby after I gave up wanting to pursue it professionally. I think that I, for a long time, let that feeling of failure, that, you know, that act of quitting, kind of define for me, define music for me. And it, it really ruined, I think, the joy that I could have taken out of it had I not beaten myself up so much about it. I think one thing these days that complicates this whole public validation dynamic is social media. And it, you know, it feels yeah. like I talk about social media in all of my podcasts, no matter what they're about. And it comes up a lot in travel because travel has always had this um, this milieu of expectations versus reality, and a lot of time when like when I was reading about your friends at Interlochen, there is an expectation at an arts camp that suddenly f- suffuses your life that oftentimes doesn't mirror reality at all. It's like travel Mm -hmm. where you have an idea about what a foreign place is like, and it's actually wonderful when you go there, but 
none of the problems and complications and surprises are a part of the expe expectation matrix. And that, that really happens in life. And that really happens um, when, you know, in our life journey as we think about pursuing our, our dreams. And then all of a sudden we have social media that creates for travel mm -hmm. a really bizarre expectation where that beach is going to be empty and everybody's going to look great in their bikini. And there's going to be abundant wildlife and interesting local people. And, and suddenly the expectation, I, I think in travel, in f though we were more cognizant of how unrealistic social media is versus reality. Whereas in life, sometimes it's even harder that we, we just assume mm -hmm. that these people who are projecting this seamless success or this very narrative success, which is problem and then solution, we assume it's reality when in fact it's not. And so, so what did you discover in the in exploring how social media affects not just our ideas of success but our ideas of self? Oh, yeah, those are such good points and I feel like um you know, part of what we're talking about with the narrative is in a lot of ways the narrative we want of people is the hero's quest, right? Is what you're saying, like obstacle, um, dark night of the soul, your trials and tribulations, you have wise guides, you know, all this stuff. And then ultimately the hero prevails. Um, we love that story. That's the, the narrative arc of so much travel writing and so much writing in general. And now the narrative arc of um, very long captions on Instagram, right? <laughs> that are telling right. like mini, mini stories, mini sort of hero's quest stories. And also giving us this idea that everyone's, um, you know, curating their kind of peak moments on Instagram. So we have like this highlights reel, but that confusingly is presented as ordinary life real um, on Instagram. And it's impossible. I mean, they've done research on this, you know, with social media, with Facebook, Instagram, everything. We know, like our brains know that what we're seeing, we know where we know intellectually that what we're seeing is, um, is not entirely real, that it is performative and that it is curated. Um, but emotionally, we can't distinguish it in any way that um, keeps us from feeling bad. It oversimplifies what we think our lives should look like, and it's more pressure in terms of making us feel like our lives, the shoulds, our lives should look a certain way. We should have a certain amount of success. We should be a certain kind of artist. And when we get into trouble is when we have too rigid an idea of um, what our lives are going to look like. We don't leave room for the evolution of what they actually do look like. And that is a much more powerful space, I think, to sit in the kind of like reality of your life versus the, the fantasy of what you thought it would be. Yeah, there's reality or even you used the word earlier, ordinary, that I think mm -hmm. that thanks to social media in part, we don't really have a sense for each other's ordinary lives because it just doesn't occur to us. Maybe it's less fun to uh, to broadcast our ordinary lives. Yet there's something about ordinariness, which is the water we swim in, right? Mm -hmm. That, we, that we, we don't actually jump through the river of life from extraordinary to extraordinary uh, stones, that we, we sort of wallow in ordinariness. And there's, I guess, is there a way to celebrate ordinariness? Or is even our celebration of ordinariness <laughs> sort of a, a posed, performed, extraordinary ordinariness? What do you think? 
Yeah, I do think about that because that is also one of the big takeaways of this book for me is that I think I really fought the idea of ordinariness. I really had a reaction against that. And part of that is because, you know, you think of being an artist, you think of being exceptional in any field, right, as a, as a kind of specialness. Um, and we all want to feel special in whatever way that manifests for us. And I do think there is a celebrating of ordinariness that is not performative, but I think that's, it's, it's a private celebration of ordinariness, I guess, you know, it's, um, it's not something once you do start like shouting it from the rooftops of Twitter, Instagram, it, it, you like, it's almost like you can't definitionally (laughs) celebrate it because you're turning it into like a special moment. And I, I wanted to talk to people in this book who have quote unquote ordinary lives, like most of us do, um, and, or, you know, they're not famous, um, because we tell the stories of the people who are famous really very often. Those are mostly the stories we get, um, are the great successes. And there is a campmate of ours who is talked about in the book quite a bit, who is a relatively famous actor. And at many points during the writing of this book, Um, I was encouraged to interview him, to include him in the book. Um, And I really thought, why? You can read about him in a glossy mag, you know, pick your glossy magazine and you can read a profile of him. I want to hear from people who are like on the ground floor here navigating this, this gap between ordinariness and specialness. Right. Well, that's, that's Ben Foster, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it is, yeah. I would actually be curious to know what ordinary looks like to Ben Foster, um, in part because the idea of ordinariness, I think, doesn't evaporate once you get your first IMDb uh, credit. <laughs> and there's there's this idea you mentioned in your book that the, the old Cosby Show actor Jeffrey Owens was spotted working as a trade at, at a Trader Joe's, and it just for a moment it just flabbergasted the whole world. Of course there was a mm-hmm. back there's a backlash to the flabbergasted and there's a backlash to everything these days. Yes there is. But but just this idea that why on earth is it bad that Jeffrey Owens is is ordinary in in the 2010s when he was on a sitcom in the year 2018. What what horribleness is ordinariness after <laughs> a degree of success has been achieved? And so maybe this is my transition into talking about the idea of gracefully giving up or quitting or even just transitioning into something that might not be as high profile as your acting credit on The Cosby Show, but might be just your way of getting through life and feeding your family and and, Mm -hmm. and being happy from day to day. What did you discover in in that realm? Yeah, yeah, that story, right, we see people as it's somehow they're sliding backwards if they're... (laughs) You know, they're they're working at Trader Joe's after being an actor or, or, or whatever, you know, that looks like in terms of when we define a pinnacle of success for someone and then we as a culture define what it means to be slipping from that. Um, and we're pretty like arbitrary and superficial when we define those things for people. You know, it's often about celebrity, obviously, right? This is why we love the stories of... Um, like what, whatever happened to mm. X star. And, and of course, many of them to have, like when you see these actors, you know, like there's, there's some actors reading around who like went on, to, went to MIT after being a childhood star and, you know, is like a mathematics professor. And somehow this is still 
seen as, you know, disappearing or um, not achieving her full potential, right? Uh, yeah. As you were speaking, I was thinking there's an actor. I think his name is like Michael Schaffler. He was in 16 Candles. He's like the handsome guy from 16 Candles. And there, there were some stories years ago where it's like, oh, well, he's off building houses in Pennsylvania. And a part of me thought, well, I bet he's happy. You know, I bet he's mm -hmm. happier as a carpenter in, in Pennsylvania. And he can just sort of look back on his on his youth rather than, um, you know, being beholden to that early success his whole life. And so I'm really curious about uh, developing a model for being ordinary or for sort of enjoying your ordinariness. And mm -hmm. in, in your book, you write, commitment is a good skill to cultivate, but maybe we should have a mandatory class for all high school seniors or college freshmen about how to gracefully quit something you've given a good go and no longer want to invest in. It could offer up strategies for how to disentangle yourself from your kid ambitions, how to stop comparing yourself to other people, and how to accept failure and loss as a part of growing up. It would emphasize that it's okay to take time to self-reflect instead of thinking your understandable disappointment requires immediate self-help intervention. How about some books where we focus on gracefully giving up on something or books that celebrate the freedom of letting go of your dreams and moving on to something else where we won't have to beat our heads against the wall or books that say it's natural sometimes to hit the limits of our ambition, talent, or desire. How about we stop telling people that they failed because they weren't determined enough or didn't believe in themselves enough? Sure, sometimes that's true, but not all the time, maybe not even most of the time. So... To, to, to sort of bounce that hypothetical back at you, how do we sharpen our sense for quitting in a way that really qualifies as self-enhancement? We're really hard on ourselves. And I don't think, you know, the majority of people are quitters. You know, you if, if you have a problem, if you have a quitting problem, then that's something you have to address. If you're, if you're someone who gives up immediately when something becomes difficult or, you know, you don't put in a certain amount of hard work, like that's a different problem. But, you know, yeah, I have a I have a three and a half year old and I think a lot about now how I'm going to balance um, what will inevitably be um, his talents and aspirations with um, being realistic and not again cynical not telling him he can't do something but in talking in a real way about um what he what he's willing to do to get there first of all what kind of work he's willing to put in and then you know asking making sure like you check in with yourself and you say is this thing i thought i wanted at one time really the thing i want now you have to keep, you know, checking in with yourself, I think, in that way and cultivating that sense of knowing when it is the time for you personally to shift to something else. And again, then you just have to be able to, I think we all have to get better at um, being okay with being a little disappointed in order to let things go. In a sense, it's it, it feels like this is a process of becoming a, a happier adult. Um, that there's there's an extent to which, if you always live in relation to who you could be instead of who you are now, um, if you always live, you know, your ordinary self in 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 contrast to this extraordinary self that may, you may have dreamed about at a much younger age, then you're going to be a less happy and maybe a less productive and easy to live with adults around your loved ones than you would be otherwise. <laughs> and I like how you bring up the, the, the Robert Frost poem, The Road Less Traveled, um, just because 
like life, that poem is not as simple as it seems. Um, mm -hmm. And there, these are we, you know, there are these roads that we didn't travel that become a part of our lives, but we want to make them a part of our lives in such a way that we don't always live in regret. You know, this is um, also the idea. This is the idea of unlived lives, right? Like somewhere, some version of us, somewhere, some version of me is a successful musician. I'm playing in, you know. Uh, I'm playing in a symphony somewhere, performing all over the world. And, um, you know, I'm like just blissfully happy. Right. It's like this romantic notion um, of my of my musician's life. And there's no way I think one of the ways I tangled with that idea of roads not taken is because there is just no way to know whether or not you would have been happier in that alternate version of your life. And there is some, some work in the book, some quotes in the book um, that I use that where other people, other philosophers um, talk about the idea that not only do we not know if we'd be happier in that other life, but we cannot pick and choose the things that we didn't get <laughs> and sort of like insert them a la carte into our life without potentially risking the entire experience we have had up until this moment. So, you know, think of your life in the current moment and list the things that are fulfilling, that make you happy, that are meaningful, the people you have in your life, um, the, the accomplishments you've had, and, you know, then say, okay, but, you know, really I should have become X. And it's like, you can't say that even if you became that, are you, are you willing in order to become X to potentially give up all the other stuff about your current reality that you hold dear? Because that really is, I think, the more realistic equation. Any, you know, you've gone down a different path. You have no idea the kind of like butterfly effects, right? The ripples of that new path and what it would have done. And for me, I found that really comforting because when I took stock of my life at the moment I was writing this book. And, and when I continue to do this, even when I've had incredible setbacks professionally and personally, um, I can't honestly say, you know, I would risk it all for some other version of me. It's interesting. You, you talk about inserting these alternate futures a la carte into your life. That sounds like a science fiction TV show, right? <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. A, it's not a choose your own adventure situation <laughs> we've got going here, you know? That, that's an episode of Black Mirror. Like <laughs> Rachel actually <laughs> yeah. becomes a violist for one week. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think, Chaos ensues. <laughs> I, I think, too, the, there's this idea of longing, like, in the sports milieu, it's almost a cliche, like the old high school football guy who can't let go. It's like Uncle Rico, mm. Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite, who's living in a van dreaming about who he could have been. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things would have been different. I'd have gone pro. In a heartbeat. I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere you know soaking it up and in the sports milieu it seems ridiculous but i think a lot of us are beholden to those old dreams if they're not as cut and dried as something like football you know that mm -hmm. th those alternative futures really nag at us um and so uh what kind of advice yeah. speaking as someone who who's 
wrote a whole book about coming to terms with your alternative future. What kind of advice would you give to people who are trying to wrap their heads about around this very, you know, ragged and, and gray reality of these feelings that come up sometimes? The first thing is that where I think we get into tricky territory with longing is when we spend too much time in kind of fantasy land. Um, but I think some longing is actually really not only good, but really natural. And, and Rebecca Solnit writes about this um, and, and plenty of other writers um, that it's actually like a very human thing to long for something. And it also gives us a point of kind of comparison and a way to gauge um, what we do have with what we think we want and to interrogate what we think we want. So again, it's like, we need to complicate this idea of longing because sometimes we think, oh, if you're longing for something, that just means you, know, you haven't taken the right actions in order to get it. And it's just like a failure of nerve or a failure of working hard enough. And when actually, um, how would we even know, you know, if we had nothing to compare the things that we did get with the things that we didn't get, how would we even be able to appreciate the things that we've gotten? So I think some of the way we can deal with feeling beholden to old dreams is to, again, which is the really the point of this whole book or what I discovered um, was useful for me was that we just need to, to lighten up on ourselves a little bit, to not be so hard on ourselves. Because in some ways, I think when we think about those old dreams, you know, we feel not only do we feel bad, we didn't get what we want, but then we feel bad for feeling bad. Um, and we, we magnify, you know, the distress. So some of it is about um, not holding on too tightly to any one vision of what our lives should look like and in thinking about um, how we can replace or evolve uh, older dreams into kind of future dreams. And then I think some of it is about um, like treating ourselves, you know, this is another therapy thing, right? When you're, when you're being hard on yourselves, there are lots of therapy, very common therapy things say, you know, how would you talk to five-year-old Rachel? You wouldn't be so hard on her. You wouldn't be beating her up about failing or about wanting to be a musician. You would be comforting to her. You would say like, it's okay. You're okay. Everything's okay. Um, and I think we could use a little more of that kind of talking to ourselves and just letting ourselves kind of be with feelings of discomfort and disappointment. I like that idea of sort of reconciling your older dreams with your future dreams, because you don't want to stop dreaming, you know, just, no. just because you've uh, accepted being ordinary and being an adult. <laughs> um, and, and so I guess uh, on a final thought, how can we uh, cultivate and identify those future dreams that might be more concrete and realistic than our nagging old dreams? I think that when we let go of the rigid notions, you know, that we had for our lives, if we're holding on too tightly to something, I, I like to think, at least for me, this is the case that that makes space for some future looking fantasies because we're now firmly grounded in our current reality. And so we have the opportunity to really think about what we want in the future. And when we, often when we really examine what we want in the future, I don't think it is the same as what we thought we wanted when we were younger. We don't, 
in a lot of ways know what we wanted because we hadn't experienced it, um, either get either the getting of it or the not getting it. So, you know, we have we are much more equipped um, the older we get to fantasize about our future in ways that I think would be are going to be much more fulfilling than um, the not experience tested ways in which we fantasized about our lives when we were kids and teenagers and in our 20s. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Rachel Friedman's book, And Then We Grew Up, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>